Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Welcome back to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And of course, I am Lauren, the counterpart to Megan. <laughs> my other half. That's yes. my other, other half. <laughs> Your platonic other platonic half. Platonic <laughs> other half. Yes, welcome, guys. We have quite the show. Quite the episode. Um, not gonna lie, this one gets dark really, really fast. Yep. Particularly since we... Man, we both went the exact same direction with our stories. Like, I think yeah, there's, we did. there's plenty of infant kidnappings that don't involve murder, but we both went murder. Yeah, just because, I don't know, like, something about these is just psychologically, like, very, very interesting to me. Yeah, um, yeah like, on a whole different level. Yeah, it's interesting. It's horrifying. Uh, we're just yeah. going to throw a bunch of trigger warnings at the at top. The top. <laughs> trigger warnings for murder, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, involuntary C-sections, I guess, is the best <laughs> way to put that. I think that's a common one to be triggered by. <laughs> I, I, yeah, if blood, guts, uh, mine also has... Babies dying babies dying mine has older children being murdered as well so child and infant murder involuntary c-sections murder kidnapping and domestic violence i'll throw that in there for mm. mine as well mm -hmm. um so if you're a sensitive listener maybe just skip this one guys it's not going yep. anywhere fun we have plenty of other episodes that don't involve like baby stuff because i know baby stuff is definitely a sensitive topic for a lot of people of course it is um and also we're doing something a little bit different so uh we've decided to do a big deep dive into one topic so this is the first episode in a whole series mm -hmm. we're going to be doing about the psychology of kidnapping so this one obviously is about kidnapping infants we will also be talking mm -hmm. about kidnapping children kidnapping adults and human trafficking so hopefully you guys like this because we're gonna be on this one for a while yeah yeah, we figured, you know, this is one that really can be broken down into several parts. All of it is super interesting. There's different psychological components to all of them, and they're all really important. Um, so we're excited to bring the information to you. We are. We're very excited. And so this one, obviously, we're going to be talking about infant kidnapping. Yes. And... Um, before we get into all of that, we did want to shout out our newest patron, um, DD. So, so D E E D period. <laughs> okay. Thank you for being our new patron. We appreciate you being here and supporting the podcast. As always, if you'd like to become a patron, we greatly appreciate it. There are some perks. We will probably add some more. Um, but we just appreciate you guys being here. It definitely helps cover the cost of um, hosting the podcast, research, all of that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep, all that good stuff. So thank you, DD, for being DD. our new podcast, new patron. We're glad to have I, you. I automatically think about Dexter's Laboratory. Oh, really? I've never like watched DD. Dexter's Laboratory. Mm, that's a good one. 
It's a good one. Yes. Last night, Nick and I, my husband, um, started watching Bob's Burgers for the first time. You've never watched Bob's no. Burgers? It's so good. It was. We only watched the first episode, but I was like, I'm into this. This is right up my alley. It's great. Once you watch more of it, let me know which character you think you're the most like. Okay. Good stuff. I'm excited. All right. So why don't we just get this train rolling? Get this train (laughs) rolling. Uh, So like I said, we're talking about infant kidnapping or baby snatching, which I guess is like the colloquial term for it that I always hear on the (laughs) news, like the scare tactic one. Um, So there's kind of three different categories, I guess, of infant kidnapping. Uh, The first and most horrifying, which we're going to be deeply diving into in our stories today, is cesarean kidnapping. Um, I hate it. Also known as womb raiding, which seems way too casual (laughs) for the severity. So cesarean kidnapping is when, like I said, involuntary C-section, when uh, somebody just cuts a baby out of another person and takes that baby. Usually murdering the mother, but there are cases in which she does survive. Mm -hmm. There's infant kidnapping which occurs... They're already out. They are out at that point in time. So any kidnapping within the first year. And then I also just wanted to touch on kidnapping babies for profit because I think a lot of times with cesarean kidnapping or infant kidnapping, and really what we're going to focus on is people who are kidnapping babies for the purpose of raising them. Right. And then there's also cases where people have kidnapped babies for profit more along the lines Mm -hmm. of human trafficking not always human trafficking but there is a historical standpoint of selling babies to other people or so like illegal adoption essentially illegal adoption thank you is probably the the correct term as far as fetal kidnapping or cesarean kidnapping there's actually horrifically about 30 cases on record of female predators who steal unborn babies as far as i can tell there are zero cases of a male stealing a baby um in my case there were males involved but there was a female so they may be involved oh actually actually i did read one um where it was a male and this is gruesome so trigger warning um but he used a car key Oh, yeah. Was he working with a female or was he single-handedly trying to steal a baby? I have to look it up, but of course the only detail I remember is the car key thing because obvious reasons. Um, But yeah, I did read one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so it looks like there can't, like I said, there can be males involved. It looks like unless um, I could be wrong, I didn't find any where it was a male single-handedly doing it, where I did find cases where it was a female single-handedly doing it. Um, and it's actually kind of considered a rare and dangerous form of stalking. Sure. Because obviously you do, usually, you have to know a pregnant woman in order to do this. There's a lot that goes into it and a lot of planning, so there's quite a bit of stalking involved. Um, the predators plan in advance watching for the right woman in right time they tend to involve a confident style approach which is 
basically aiming the woman's trust. This is not something that typically happens with strangers, like seeing a woman and going for it. It's very mm-hmm. much a getting this woman to trust you. This is all mm-hmm. from Catherine Ramsland, PhD. So this is just whose kind of perspective this is. I'll make sure I give her a name. Um, so they've, they've typically, so on one hand, they do gain their victim's trust. They also have conned others into believing that they're pregnant. So typically there's fake announcements, ultrasound images, and to prepare them for the sudden appearance of a baby. So again, this is where that stalking factor comes in. This isn't a spontaneous act. These are people who are pretending that they are pregnant for long periods of time, oftentimes having baby showers, padding their clothing to make them appear to be pregnant. They'll often, some of these cases actually have had medical procedures and they can no longer get pregnant, but they announce it as a miracle birth, a surprise birth, like something went wrong and they miraculously did get pregnant. So they go through, then they tend to lure the target to a private place or visit their home, kills or renders them unconscious, and then removes the child. Interestingly enough, they typically are so engrossed with preparing for the concept of taking the baby that they will overlook obvious things that need to be done in order to convincingly show that they had a baby. Um, I read some cases where they um, did go to the hospital and said they gave birth at home and they were trying to get a birth certificate for the baby. And apparently, if you could go to a hospital asking for a birth certificate for a baby, they will actually examine you to ensure that you did just give (gasps) birth. And fascinating. Because typically, if you're going to the hospital after a home birth, they would want to check you out and make sure that everything's okay. Definitely. With both you and the baby. And so, yeah, there have been cases where people got caught because they took the baby to the hospital, underwent an examination. And they're like, you obviously did not give birth within the last 24 hours because there are certain indicators that are fairly obvious to a medical professional if you have recently given birth. And so that's typically how they get caught because they focus very much on getting the baby and very little on actually all of the logistics you need to have a baby. Now, it also does vary state by state how you can get a birth certificate for a baby born at home. Obviously, people do have home births and do get birth certificates, but there's different procedures in place. And I think you do typically have to prove (laughs) that you did actually have this baby in some way, right? Usually, if you give like a regular home birth, you'll have a midwife or doula or some professional who's there who can verify that you did in fact give birth to this right, baby. Right, absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Something that I personally think is super interesting that could come into play with this topic is um, something called pseudocesis, and I think that's how you pronounce it. But essentially what it is, and this is the definition from the DSM, is it's a false belief of being pregnant that is associated with objective signs and reported symptoms of pregnancy, which may include abdominal enlargement, reduced menstrual flow, amenorrhea, which means you don't have a period, um, subjective sensation of fetal movement, nausea, breast breast engorgement, secretions and labor pains at the expected date of delivery. So this is 
literally a, this is essentially saying you can like convince yourself and your body that you're going through a pregnancy, which is fascinating that the brain can convince itself of that. Um, you know, I know a lot of women experience this to like a smaller degree, um, especially as they're trying to get pregnant, they might, you know, feel certain symptoms and it might be like, oh, you know, I, I think I'm pregnant. Um, and that's normal, but this is something a little bit different. And I feel like when it gets to this degree, um, you know, you may start to worry, you know, for these women of like, okay, you've convinced yourself that you're pregnant. You really fully believe it. You know, what happens when it's time to have the baby? So that this is kind of like a scary thing that might come into play. So, in cases of pseudocesis, nowadays are found more frequently in rural, undeveloped countries where women usually are not examined by a physician or a midwife until they are in labor or seek medical aid. In more developed countries, women visit obstetricians in the first trimester of pregnancy, which, you know, a lot of us know, and they have more accurate means of diagnosis, including pregnancy tests and ultrasonographic examinations. Um, so these diagnostic procedures may help pseudocytic women to be convinced of their non-pregnant condition. That usually leads to resolution within minutes or even seconds. So usually in, in these types of cases, all it really takes is to, you know, do an ultrasound, take a pregnancy test. Then they're able to see like, okay, clearly I'm not pregnant. That's really all it takes. So according to this lit review that I read, um, in a literature review, all it's doing is it's pulling in different um, research studies and just kind of drawing conclusions based on several different studies. What they found is pseudocytic women share many endocrine traits with PCOS, so poly polycystic ovarian syndrome, and major depressive disorder, although these traits are more akin to PCOS than to major depressive disorder. Um, they reviewed the data and it supported the notion that pseudocytic women may have increased sympathetic nervous system activity. So function of the central nervous system, uh, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but catecholaminergic pathways involved in the regulation of hormone secretion from adenohyphosis. I'm trying your best and I believe I'm trying you. my best. So this is all very like neuroy, but essentially these neuroendocrine or endocrine disorders may cause hypomenorrhea, so that's like spotty or very light periods, amenorrhea, so no period, galactorrhea, so this is essentially like producing milky nipple discharge, uh, dineural or nocturnal hyperlactaminia. So what they find is there's more prolactin um, in their system or in their blood, which stimulates breast milk, which is really interesting that the body starts to produce that. Um, let's see. And then abdominal dissension and apparent fetal movements and labor pains at the expected date of delivery. Um, so these are all experienced by pseudocytic women. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's interesting that you know, if there's some sort of like hormone imbalance or like depressive disorder, it may be easier to, you know, believe these things or read into these certain symptoms. But essentially, all you have to do is if you're having this problem, um, you know, go to a doctor, confirm if you do have that ability to do so. Right. And I think one of the interesting things, I've often heard this called like hysterical pregnancy, where you're not really pregnant, mm -hmm. but you think you are. But, you know, 
It definitely does happen to a variety. I think it can be as minor as somebody feeling worried, like having a pregnancy yeah. scare, right? Who maybe doesn't want to be pregnant and thinks they might be, who suddenly, once they get worried, exhibits more symptoms of it. Like yeah. they're really nauseous and then they get their period and they're like, oh, that was weird. Like, I think it can happen like that to full-blown people have gone to the hospital thinking they were in labor and then they realize mm -hmm. there isn't a baby. Right. But also, just a fun fact I happen to know, um, as far as the creation of breast milk, it is actually possible to produce breast milk without ever having been pregnant. Really? Even in males. Sometimes what? there are certain... There are certain um, medical conditions and, like, hormonal things and even, in mm -hmm. some cases, uh, certain tumors, I believe, that can actually cause you to produce breast milk. I think there's also some medications that can induce it. So there have been, you know, people who have adopted babies who have been able to nurse their adopted baby because there are, you know, medications and other ways that you can produce breast milk obviously the most common one being getting pregnant that'll do it for most people not everyone it. can yeah. produce milk that is something that does happen but yeah there are other ways which is kind of weird because you would think only pregnancy but there's some wiggle yeah. room yeah it's so fascinating to me yeah. um so philip resnick he's a psychiatrist who's an expert on child murder has really talked a bit about fetal theft and he perceives it as the maternal instinct gone wrong. Um, mm. So he says the perpetrators of the, you know, fetal theft, typically women who cannot have children or have lost a child, they really, really want to be mothers and they kind of turn that into anything to get a baby. Like they'll get a baby any means necessary, searching through mm -hmm. online chat groups because they feel a baby will complete them. He does make the distinction that fetal snatchers live in a delusional fantasy world, but they are not psychotic. They are fully aware of the reality, but prefer the fantasy. Hmm. And so that's really interesting. Like, they are delusional, but he's like, they are not psychotic. They are aware of what they're doing. And I do think that's such an important distinction, right? That they are consciously choosing to believe that they are pregnant, but they are fully aware that they're not, and they are going to go through this. Right. Um, so some general kidnapping things. This is from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This is unrelated, but to any of you who are parents out there, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children does have an excellent thing called WebSmarts and NetSmarts about internet safety for children. So just a plug, check out their website. There's lots of good information on there, not just about missing children, right? About internet safety and other things. So they have published documentation for healthcare professionals on preventing abductions. Um, here, I have a couple different slides from them. Uh, because, so basically, total abductions um, of infants related to healthcare. Okay, so between 1964 and November 2020, I'm skipping around on my slides a little bit because I think it'll make more sense. So between 64 and 2020, in the United States of America, there have been 329 
cases of abducted infants. 140 were taken from healthcare facilities. 142 were taken from the home. 47 were abducted in other locations. And I'm just going to add this because I think it's important when we talk about missing children. This last statistic is really important to discuss. Of those 329 infants who were abducted, only 15 remain missing. So I always think it's important to clarify. They do end up finding a lot of children. It's very unfortunate that 15 of them are still missing, but that was 329 infants under six months of age who were abducted. So since 140 were taken from healthcare facilities, um, these are a couple things that they are publishing for healthcare professionals on how to prevent abductions and spot potential warning signs. So these are the characteristics of women who commit this type of crime. Being a woman of childbearing age, which they define as between 12 and 55 years, um, obviously your individual ability to bear a child varies greatly, but that's the general (laughs) age bracket where it's possible if you average it out. With a history of deception or manipulation, Mm -hmm. they tend to live within the same community as the targeted mother or mother-to-be. They have regularly indicated she's unable to have children or has lost children in the past. They oftentimes will make themselves familiar with healthcare professionals, a victim's parents, and staff members within a hospital. Those who abduct from home settings are more likely to be single, but they claim to have a partner, which I find interesting. Uh, They can plan the abduction and bring a weapon, but may or may not use the weapon. And they can impersonate healthcare professionals visiting the home. Um, You know, I think really, and obviously I like to discount, for... People who want children, being unable to have a a child when you want one is, of course, devastating. Like, it is a really emotional thing that a lot of people have a hard time coming to terms with. That's So, a review of abduction cases involving babies has revealed the profile of a woman who may resort to snatching another woman's child. They've been identified as lone female offenders often with a history of miscarriage or unable to naturally have children. They may be in an unstable relationship where they feel the addition of a baby will cement their partnership and ensure their partner will stay. Hmm. So, more things um, from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children on infant kidnapping is again usually a female of childbearing age and they now clarify who appears to be pregnant Mm. they're compulsive rely on manipulation lying and deception often married or cohabitating the companion's desire for a baby or the abductor's desire to provide her companion with his baby might be motivation for the abduction Hmm. frequently initially visits nursery and maternity units at more than one healthcare facility prior to the abduction, asks detailed questions about the procedures and maternity floor layout, and frequently uses a fire exit stairwell for escape. Oh. Um, so that's just kind of something for them to know, right? When you're doing... A lot of people will do tours 
of hospitals, delivery centers to like decide what hospital they want to go to. But certain questions about the layout and things like that could be considered a red flag. Not always. Some people just want to know every bit of information possible, but could be a red flag. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like thinking about like that scenario, putting yourself in there, I can't imagine being like, you know, where's the closest exit and adjacent to <laughs> the nursery? Right, like, just so I know. I think I would want to know. And actually, a lot of hospitals don't have nurseries anymore unless your baby's yeah. in the NICU. Typically, they're in your room, right? I completely understand asking questions about the layout of a labor and del- delivery room. If you like, have a where private do I have to walk bathroom, to? Yeah. Like, those are, I think, questions that most people would consider asking. Like... <laughs> Is there anywhere you would take the baby away from me? Like, those types of things. But, like, the actual layout of the unit and exits and stuff may be a bit suspicious. Um, So, particularly, they mentioned, like, trying to become familiar with healthcare staff members and their work routines. Like, being overly interested in the patterns of people moving. Um, They usually demonstrate a capability to provide care for the baby because a lot of infant kids they do intend on taking care of the baby like they're not they are taking it specifically with the intention of raising it um and then an abductor who abducts in a home setting more likely to be single targets a mother whom she may find visiting healthcare facilities and tries to meet the target family plans the abduction and oftentimes will impersonate a healthcare worker or social services professional when visiting the home. Obviously, this is why you just want to be really cautious about anyone visiting your home. Mm-hmm. See badges. Call the doctor's office and verify before you let them in, right? Most places, you, you can usually verify the identity of a social services or healthcare worker who's coming to your home. So, For sure. Yeah, so so one thing I wanted to briefly talk about, I'm not going to do a deep dive into it or anything, um, but I know we were talking about the three different types of people who steal babies, or, yeah, and um, one of them was kidnapping babies for profit. So one interesting thing is um, this case of a woman named Georgia Tan. So, for 20 years in Tennessee, uh, Georgia ran a lucrative child abduction and adoption ring. So, it was known as the Tennessee Children's Home Society in Memphis. And approximately 50, or sorry, not 50, 5,000 children were snatched by Tan. Um, So, what essentially happened here is Tan had taken advantage of the lack of regulation around adoption and it really helped her perpetuate this scheme. Um, she also relied on the desperation of would-be parents to keep them quiet, you know, um, really took advantage of these people who couldn't have children for whatever reason. Um, according to the reports, then after the home was closed, many children actually died while under Tan's care. Um, those who managed to survive are still grappling um, with just the cruelty and the greed that took place because, you know, it definitely brings up a lot of questions once you find out that you are essentially stolen and that your parents, you know, participated in this very illegal, you know, underground adoption ring. Um, so a- another problematic thing about this was that Georgia Tan seemed to 
abduct infants um, from people who are in the low SES population and would give them to like wealthy, richer families, um, which is super problematic because, I mean, for obvious reasons, but for her to deem, you know, low SES parents as being unworthy was just completely inappropriate and unfair. Um, but aside from her poor judgment, uh, the other problematic thing was just the network of corrupt social workers, police officers, doctors, lawyers, and judges who actually helped her get away with the scheme. Um, you know, it's, it's not super clear how often this sort of thing takes place. It is highly disturbing, at least in my opinion, that this ring um, lasted for 20 years in the States. Um, so this, this does exist and this is kind of what it would look like. Um, another thing that I thought might be good just to kind of go over briefly is code pink. Um, so code pink is the code that they use in hospital settings. Um, if a infant goes missing, um, so I just wanted to kind of go over just different security measures that are in place in hospitals, um, especially if you are someone who, you know, is pregnant or, excuse me, having a baby soon. It might be comforting to hear what security measures are in place um, to keep the baby safe because there are a bunch now. Um, so according to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, as we mentioned before, um, they reported in 2008 that in the past 25 years, 252 newborns were abducted in the USA, and alarmingly, half of it, so 123 cases, took place in obstetric or pediatric setting, um, so in hospitals. But nowadays, um, there are a number of things that they put in place. So one is the use of ID tags and bracelets. Um, they must be worn around the baby's ankle and by the mother, um, and the baby's father. So if a third bracelet isn't worn by the father, there's no father present, or there isn't another family member who wants to wear it, it has to be documented. Um, usually they'll staple, staple it to the baby's chart um, just to make sure that it's not getting into the wrong hands. Um, also, all staff members must present you with an ID at any time they come in contact with the baby. So that's another thing just to be mindful of is, you know, they're supposed to present their ID and show you who they are. Um, another security thing that they have in place is they don't post the mother's or the infant's full name where it can be visible to visitors. Um, if necessary, they'll use surnames only. Um, they're also encouraged not to publish the mother's or the infant's full name on bassinet cards, rooms, um, status, or whiteboards. This is always encouraged, no matter what this scenario is in hospitals, but to not leave medical charts open, patient index cards, or any other medical information visible to anyone other than the medical personnel. They must be aware identifying information in the bassinet, such as... Um, ID cards with the infant's photograph and the family's name, address, and phone number may put the infant and family at risk after discharge. So it's strongly encouraged not to do any of these things in hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, something that, you know, is a cute thing, you know, a lot of parents keep, but also is a security thing, is getting the baby's footprints shortly after they're born um, so they can be identified in case, you know, a situation happens where they go missing. Mm-hmm. 
personnel who are permitted to transport infants from the mother's room or nursery, including physicians, are encouraged to wear a form of unique identification used only by them and known to the parents, such as a distinctive and prominent color or making or marking to designate um, that they're authorized to transport infants. So this is a good question to ask, especially, you know, as you're getting ready to have a baby or whatever, touring hospitals, um, asking like, okay, you know, how can I identify that this person is authorized to transport infants? And they should be able to easily answer that question for you. Of course, outside of these security measures, there are going to be cameras. <laughs> you know, there there should be cameras at work um, and that are all over the nursery, in the hallways, all of those good things. Um, staff is encouraged to practice code pink drills once a month. Um, so, you know, essentially practicing what they would do if a child were to go missing. Um, and they're also trained to spot and report odd behaviors. Um, so I was able to kind of look a little bit into the training that's given. And it is extremely thorough. And I just wanted to give you guys some examples of like odd behaviors yeah. and that one, they may look for. One thing I want to add real quick, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. What I've heard from a lot of people I know who have had babies... Uh, my mom always said her favorite thing about being in the hospital was the nursery because you got to sleep and sure. like rest and someone else took care of the baby. Largely not true in American hospitals anymore, like I said earlier, to prevent kidnapping and also babies being switched at birth. Sure. Uh, it is pretty typical that now the baby stays in the room with the parents unless they're undergoing like specific testing or are in mm -hmm. the NICU but for the most part they really really try to keep them within the eyesight and do as much testing and stuff directly in front of the parents as possible so that yeah. they can kind of always see the baby exactly and that's kind of part of the training too is that you know mothers are able to see a baby in line of sight um, and then, of course, as we mentioned before, the ID tags, that's going to be super important. As also with, like, babies being switched at birth, too. It just kind of ensures that, mm -hmm. okay, you're getting the right baby <laughs> at the end of the day. So, yeah, so th these were some examples that they gave of odd behaviors. Um, so all healthcare facility personnel should alert any unusual behavior they encounter from individuals such as visiting repeatedly or requesting just to see or hold the infants. Um, that would be questionable. Mm -hmm. Questioning those on the floor about healthcare facility procedures, security devices, and layout of the floor, such as when is feeding time? When are the babies taken to the mothers? Where are the emergency exits? Where do stairwells lead? How late are visitors allowed on the floor? Do babies stay with their mothers at all times? Taking uniforms or other means of identification within the facility, so if somebody's stealing that, super sus. <laughs> Carrying an infant in the facility's corridor instead of using the bassinet to transport the infant, that would be considered odd, or leaving the facility with an infant while on foot rather than wheelchair. Yeah, you're pretty much never, if you are a patient at a hospital, they almost never let you walk. They will wheel you out the door Everywhere. pretty much every time. Yeah. So... Yeah, they don't just let you, like, walk out with your baby. Typically, yeah, they, they wheel you out to your car. Exactly. Um, also, carrying large packages off the maternity unit, such as gym bags, suitcases, and backpacks, particularly if the person is carrying the bag, cradling or talking to it. 
So, yes, that'd be extremely obvious. Right, like a backpack would typically be on your back uh, or on one shoulder. But uh, if you're holding it in front of you, cradling it while whispering to it, (laughs) something, something is Something needs to be checked out. Even if it's not a baby, it's cause for concern. Still a bit of a bit of a red flag there. Yes. Um, another thing I thought might be helpful to share is um, FBI safety tips. Um, Ooh. In terms of having a baby, bringing a baby home, all that. Um, so they say, as much as you want to tell the world about your new arrival, the Crimes Against Children Unit recommends against displaying the traditional pink or blue balloons or yard signs welcoming the baby. These are literally flags alerting a potential abductor of an available infant. This is... I've seen those. My, I have too. I've never understood it, especially since I usually see them where it's like balloons and the stork and the stork mm-hmm. says the full name of the baby yep. and, and their, their birth, birth date, the birth date, their weight and their yep. length. And I'm and it, I just don't I don't understand it's that. I absolutely idea. understand texting emailing sending out birth announcements to your loved ones right that totally makes sense yep i don't quite understand the concept of wanting everybody who drives past your house to know your infant's full name and the day they were born that seems weird to me right because there's no way you know your neighbors that well there's going to be people in your neighborhood visiting people that you have no idea who they are so just like they said it's a giant red flag so just be really cognizant of that it's okay to be excited about your baby no one's saying don't be excited but be mindful of what information you're giving to complete strangers Mm -hmm. so yeah i thought that was smart too um Newer expectant mothers and other family members should always be aware of their surroundings and who they encounter. They should avoid giving strangers any personal information if someone attempts to start a conversation that involves the infant. Asking too many personal questions may be a warning sign. Um, So I think it's normal, you know, for people like in the grocery store line to be like oh like what's your baby's name but if they're like oh and what's their middle name and last name like (laughs) you know these are problematic questions right i think i mean i love babies Mm -hmm. so much i really really do i'm i'm such a baby person i don't even think i've ever asked somebody a baby's name but i've definitely started conversations with moms because i'm usually like making funny faces at their baby and their baby's giggling so they look and they're like what and mom's like sorry i just like babies usually i'll just be like oh how old are they is probably the only one that's my go-to question i'll be like oh they're so cute how old are they right you know because i mean different developmental stages and babies like change so quickly But it just, yeah, like, it's never, I don't think I've ever asked someone the name of their baby if it's not someone that I know personally. Right. Then I'll ask. But yeah, it's just, like, asking, like, how old they are or, like, then calculating their birth date based on how old or, like, asking tons of questions about what they can and can't do. That gets weird to ask a stranger. Like, Definitely. oh, are they crawling yet? Like, why are you why are you asking a stranger? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's there's just certain things where if it makes you feel weird, it's probably a weird question yeah. that you don't have to answer. Um 
Another one is make sure uh, online privacy settings keep your social media profiles available only to people you want to see your photos, location, or other information. Photos contain information that can tell an abductor where the photo was taken so they can locate you. It's probably even a good idea to refrain from posting where you will be at any given time. Um, in general, this is just a good thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, Another one is, even if you think you may be overreacting, you should report any suspicious activity, odd behavior of strangers, or unusual attempts to contact you. You may not think it's important, the FBI's, a guy named Douglas explains, but the type of information allows us to track incidents and could help prevent future abductions. So all details are super important. It's also a good idea to discuss infant protection procedures with any prospective hospital before you choose where you will deliver the baby. You know, that should be a really important piece of where you decide. Um, another one that I added on here that wasn't part of the FBI safety tips, but I guess is a Lauren safety tip from everything that we've read. Um, never go to a stranger's home while you're pregnant alone. Definitely have somebody go with you or meet in a public area or there's even designated spots you can meet um, at police stations to exchange goods. Um, just not a good idea. Right. Definitely. If you're like trying, to, I mean, because, okay, buying baby clothes on like Facebook marketplace is pretty sure. common because there are a lot of moms or dads or yep. parents who have a bunch of baby stuff and their baby's too old for it now so they're trying to get rid of it great solid by all means buy used right save some money but try to meet in public bring someone with you if you're going and your baby is already born and you have to go alone maybe if there's someone else who can watch the baby maybe don't yeah. bring them right try to do those things and always check your like local police and fire station because a lot of police stations, fire stations will have designated spots, parking spaces that are video recorded and not necessarily that like the police will do anything. But like if, if somebody knows they're being video recorded, they're less likely if they do have nefarious intent to murder you right outside of a police station. Yep. Usually, usually that dissuades them, so. I would hope so. So now. We, so now. We're about to get really dark. Really dark. Um, so, little, little prelude, I guess, as to why I chose this story. So, this story is absolutely horrendous. It is really, really upsetting, but... Um, I actually chose this story because it's kind of personal for me. Not for me. I didn't know the family, but my husband did. So he actually knew the family. Um, he went to, they all went to the same church. And so he knew them decently well. One of the boys, Joshua, was kind of like in Tim's groups as a kid in the church. So they would play together. And my husband was about 10 when this happened. And it's had a mm. pretty big impact on his life um so i'll kind of be adding i think it's a really interesting perspective because this is the first time i've ever covered a case that like i was able to get some like personal information about the victims yeah. um so it's i crazy. can share a couple like things 
not sharing too much that's not like public knowledge, but a couple things um, from Tim. We talked about this quite a bit yesterday. So mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about the murder of Deborah Evans and Samantha Evans and Joshua Evans. Um, so this happened in November of 1995 in Addison, Illinois. Um, so Deborah Evans was the mother of three children. She had 10-year-old Samantha, 8-year-old Joshua, 19-month-old Jordan, and she was eight and a half months pregnant with her fourth child. So this occurred on November 16th. She was going to go in the hospital on the 19th to have the baby induced, and she was going to name the baby Elijah. Mm. So she was, um, you know, by all accounts, she was a single mother. You know, Tim talked about how she was really trying to get her life together. She, you know, had these kids. She was trying to stabilize, was really working towards getting a good life for them, different jobs. Um, like I said, I think he knew Joshua the best. They weren't, like, best friends or anything, but they did play together quite a bit. So he describes Samantha and Joshua as just, like, regular kids. They like to play mm-hmm. games, run around, tons of energy, and they just all kind of ran in the same group together. Um, Jordan was obviously... <laughs> he was 19 months old, so Jordan was with the rest of the toddlers. <laughs> so she was going to name the baby Elijah. And... There are three people involved in this case. This is kind of a complicated one. So, the father of 19-month-old Jordan was a man named Laverne Ward. So, Ward was Deborah's ex-boyfriend. And Mm. she had a restraining order against him for domestic violence. Now, Mm. allegedly... Ward was also the father of the unborn child, Elijah. It's unclear because I did read in a lot of the court reports, they specifically say that they were going to run a paternity test on the baby to determine if Ward was or was not the father. I was unable to find any information on what that paternity, how that paternity test actually went. So... I don't know who the father was. Um, mm. Deborah also had a live-in boyfriend at the time. Um, so that that detail you see told both ways a lot. I genuinely don't know. But okay. Deborah had a restraining order against Laverne Ward for domestic violence. But mm-hmm. Ward, his cousin, Jacqueline Williams, and Jacqueline's boyfriend, Fidel Caffrey, came to the house as a group. So there was a restraining order, but Deborah, who everybody, even the newspaper was like, she's super nice. And so for whatever reason, she did allow them into her house. Um, okay. So not sure. So they came to talk to her. So she had a restraining order. She let him in. And once inside, Ward offered her $2,000 for the baby. What? She said no. And then there's some there's some tricky stuff on this. But then Fidel Caffey pulled out a gun and shot her in the head. Oh, my God. And then Ward and Caffey went into Samantha's room and stabbed her to death. So they shot Deborah in the head. And then they also went and killed Samantha. Jacqueline Williams 
Caffeine Ward used scissors and a knife to open her stomach and remove the male fetus from her womb. Williams performed mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on the infant. He was breathing on his own. She cleaned him up, dressed him in a sleeper. So she cleaned up the baby, got him dressed. Uh, Deborah, unfortunately, also had multiple stab wounds in the neck. So there, there was a lot, there was a lot of violence involved in this case. Right. Um, so wait, when they took the baby out, the baby was alive. The baby, the baby did live. Yeah, okay. they were about to induce her in a couple days. Um, I heard a few because I read through the court records on this one. Mm-hmm. It's rough to read some of the details. So yeah, if you really want the full details on this, you can actually find the Supreme Court ruling on uh, Murderpedia if you want more information than I'm going to give you. But due to the graphic I'm, nature, I'm good. I just was curious if the baby was alive. Right, I'm telling this to our audience. If they would like okay. to, they can. But it gets bad. So he was alive. She performed mouth to mouth. I guess he wasn't breathing. I heard that he was dropped and then mm. wasn't breathing or just didn't breathe right away. So, she cleaned him in the kitchen sink, dressed him up in a cute little baby outfit. They left 19-month-old Jordan in the apartment with his dead mother and sister. So, they just left the baby there. They took Elijah and 8-year-old Joshua with them. So, I did read some stuff about, um, you know, Joshua did know Jacqueline Williams, Fidel, and Laverne Ward. And Mm -hmm. so... It sounds like he kind of ran out and told Jacqueline, the burglars are hurting my sister, and then was really scared and asked to not be left alone. So they took him, the three of them took Joshua and the baby with them. Um, So then, and and they just left the 19-month-old there. Wow. Which is also strange because that was Laverne Ward's child was 19 right. month old Jordan. They just left him there. Um, allegedly because he was too young to be able to say anything about what happened. It's kind of the oh. accepted reason why he didn't get her and because he was Laverne Ward's son. So they took Joshua and they went to the apartment of their friend Patrice Scott around midnight. Jacqueline Williams asked Patrice, if she would keep Joshua for the night, stating his mother had been shot in a drug deal and was in the hospital. And then she's like, oh, also, I just gave birth. I'll bring the baby with when I pick him up the next night. And Joshua asked for help from Patrice. He was, uh, Patrice has said that he was crying throughout the night um, and was just really upset and told her like the next morning he told her that his mother and sister were dead and that Williams, Caffrey and Evan and um sorry not Evans Ward were the people that killed them. So wow. he told her. So brave. It was so brave. Um it was so brave and now it's about to get much sadder. Oh shit. It was okay. so brave and then uh Patrice basically told them what had happened Mm -hmm. and that Joshua had told them what they did and eventually did call the police but the group realized that Joshua could be a witness to the crime. He was poisoned, strangled, and eventually stabbed in the neck until he died. 
So he did get out of the house, but sadly they killed him later, which is, I, it's just awful. Um, so yeah, they, they kind of, he was alive for about a day afterward and they left his body in an alley where he was discovered wow. later that day. So, um, yeah, just real, just, I wasn't kidding when I said how awful this one is. Dark, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, this was tricky, right, because there were three people involved, mm-hmm. and, you know, really, at that point, they didn't know exactly what happened, but the Patrice who Joshua had talked to, I believe, did end up calling the police, did end up saying some stuff about what happened. Um, I read through some of the stuff that they threatened to kill her, too, when she was very afraid of what was going on. So, of course, we don't want to blame her for the fact that Joshua was then killed. No. I am confident she's felt bad enough about that. Of course. Her her life. So, you know, I don't know the specifics, obviously, on that one. But they were really unclear. There was a manhunt. They were trying to find Joshua and the baby. They were trying to figure it out. Um, Deborah Evans's boyfriend came home from work at two o'clock in the morning and did find Jordan just wandering around on his own saying, like, Mama hurt. And then he discovered mm. the bodies and called the police. And so that's how they found out. So, obviously, Jacqueline Williams, uh, Fidel Caffey, and... Laverne Ward were all arrested. I think within about 24 to 48 hours of this happened, they were arrested pretty quickly. Uh, They did have the baby with them when they were arrested. Mm -hmm. And so there was some confusion about what actually happened and Mm -hmm. why this happened. So basically what they ended up figuring out through the investigation is that Jacqueline Williams was unable to have more children um, looks like she had a couple of miscarriages. She had three children at the time, but wasn't able to have more. And uh-huh. her boyfriend, Fidel Caffrey, really, really wanted a baby. And really, he really wanted a baby boy that would look like them. And Jacqueline's cousin, Laverne Mord, through him, they knew Deborah Evans. And they knew that she was pregnant with a baby boy. Mm. So they decided that they wanted her baby. And that's kind of how this whole thing came to be. Um, Jacqueline Williams did pretend to be pregnant. She changed the delivery date of the baby several times, had a baby shower, kind of did go through the whole thing. Jeez. And I was able to find um, some of the actual court testimony about Jacqueline Williams. Um, So Dr. Frank Cushing testified that he talked with Williams in the DuPage County Jail and administered a battery of psychological texts. He said that he she knew right from wrong at the time of the murders and that she could have controlled the events. Um, mm-hmm. So this is interesting because he actually was testifying on the behalf of the defense and really oh. did not help the defense at all i'm sure really he didn't <laughs> the prosecution with their case quite frankly so um he testified yeah that she knew right from wrong at the time of the murder she could have controlled the events her mother martha martin testified that her daughter had a normal childhood had good relationships with her parents did well in school attended church regularly she had dropped out of high school during her sophomore year because she got pregnant with her oldest child's 
Uh, her sister, Tina, said she had a close relationship with Williams as a child and described her as a daddy's girl. Further went on to say she was too trusting and noted that Williams's former husband, former husband and subsequent boyfriends had beaded her. The picture of Williams that began to emerge from the testimony was a woman who had been raised in a close-knit family who left Chicago in the 60s for a better, safer life in Wheaton. Something seemed to go wrong while she was in high school, but nobody really knew what happened, but they did say mm-hmm. that she kind of had a shift. In a brief interview after her testimony, her mother Martha said she was at a loss to describe how Jacqueline Williams could have ended up where she is today. There are a lot of pieces to the puzzle missing. She loved people too much, not just kids, but all people. Hmm. Um, So the psychologist Cushing testified that Williams has vehemently denied her involvement in the crimes, even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, and she refuses to take responsibility for her actions, blaming others instead. So I did read th- there's mm. there is compelling evidence of this, um, especially from the testimony that um, Patrice Scott was able to give about what Joshua had told her. A lot of the stuff that he had said was brought up in the uh, trial, as well as, quite frankly, just loads of physical and circumstantial evidence Mm -hmm. in this case. Uh, Cushing also testified that Williams is not psychotic. She was not having... I was going to say, she sounds more like personality disorder-y. Yeah, she's not psychotic, was not having psychotic episodes, nor did she tell the doctor that she had been threatened at all. So she denied even, like, never even tried to say that she had been threatened into doing this or anything. Um, She had been preoccupied, he said, with ridiculous things, such as the lack of freedom and privacy in jail, rather than the serious issue of being charged with murder. Oh, no. Right. So, wasn't even, like, concerned about that, but was concerned with um, how things were in jail. Uh, He did also testify that she suffers from antisocial personality disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, and has an IQ well below average. Got it. Okay. Um, He said she also suffers from clinical depression and that the disorders made her psychologically vulnerable to predatory males. Okay. Okay. And Katie Evans, who's Deborah Evans' younger sister, the victim, took the stand for the defense, saying that Deborah Evans had feared for her safety before the murders because she was being harassed by her former boyfriend, Laverne Ward. Um, So, you know, which is just interesting, right, that she was afraid of him, and that's pretty well documented. He was there, obviously. Um... So, yeah, I also think it does say bipolar personality disorder. I wonder if it's borderline. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Obviously, although by definition, you you really can't have more than one personality right. disorder. Right, and bipolar is not a personality Right, <laughs> I don't know if that's an old DSM. I tried yeah. to research, I couldn't find anything. But, I mean, certainly, I think it... Within the context of antisocial personality disorder, people with antisocial personality disorder really do not understand other people have emotions and empathy and really consider other people as 
ways to get like pawns right yeah. like pawns so it does make sense that a person who would decide to steal a baby and murder children mm-hmm. would have antisocial personality disorder because if you don't view other people as people it's much easier to jump to like oh well i'll just cut out her baby and steal it then i'll have the baby that my boyfriend wants no problem right right and also the piece of her being really focused on um like freedom and like what's fair for her like quote unquote like that fits with like an antisocial disorder too absolutely um so at the point in time um in case you're wondering how this turned out all three people were convicted in the murder uh fidel so i think they were so okay it is uh jacqueline and her boyfriend Fidel were both sentenced to death wow. in the state of Illinois for this, and then Ward, I believe, was sentenced to life in prison. Um, Weird. So I I forget the specifics of kind of how those charges came to be, but yes, yeah, she was sentenced to death, and um, they one of the interesting things. So in 2012, she actually tried to get out of jail. Because oh right after they were sentenced to death, something happened in Illinois, and Illinois, they commuted all sentences from the death penalty to life in prison with no possibility of parole. So Illinois does not have the death penalty anymore, which right. is a whole... There, there are a bunch of things about the governor who made that determination that people... Have pro- we're not going to get into Illinois politics right now, um, but as George Ryan eliminated the death penalty in the state of Illinois not too long after this was happened, so she's now in life in prison. Um, she basically is... Her argument, and I couldn't find anything on this after 2012, so obviously she did... That was years ago, and she is still in jail, so she did not end up getting out... She was mm-hmm. trying to make the argument that she wasn't in the apartment when any of this happened. Okay. There's plenty of evidence that she is. Um, and I guess my counter argument to that is even if she wasn't in the apartment, even if, which I believe she was based on the evidence I read, but even if she wasn't in the apartment, she still knew what they were, knew what was happening and failed to stop it. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't even just murder Deborah. They murdered two of her children as right. well. And, you know, realistically, like, not to get extra morbid, they could have planned a way to do this that didn't involve murdering the kids. They could have Definitely. done this. Like, they, she still made choices. So, kind of even regardless. And the lawyers were just like, this is a woman asking for a miracle who's already had her sentence commuted to life. Like, she already got her miracle on this case. It's not getting another one. And, um, yeah, so they were convicted, and I do have, um, just a couple things. So the children, uh, Elijah, the baby, did survive. He is still alive now. So is Jordan. Um, It is reported that Jordan, who was 19 months old at the time of the murder and was left in the home, has no memories of this. He does not remember anything that happened. Um, Elijah, who now goes by Eli, is he has asked his... So they were raised by their grandfather, Sam Evans. So he has asked his grandfather to not disclose where they are or what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Which, perfectly valid, we're not going to speculate. Like, they've asked for their privacy, and they have absolutely earned it. Mm -hmm. Um, But Sam is clearly proud of the young man his grandsons have become. He said they are sharp, they are doing well, they're doing well, that we all survived. So he's indicated that the survivors are doing well. Um, But I did, you know, I did find an interesting article um, where Sam Evans, and I think this just says something about, like, how nice of a family this actually is, is there was Mm -hmm. another case um, of a fetal kidnapping murder that happened, and he was actually quoted in the newspaper giving advice to the family. Was it the... Ochoa. Yeah. Yeah. When that one, when the Ochoa case happened, um, he offered advice to the family as they dealt with the tragedy of losing their young daughter, wife, and mother, saying that they should be honest with her son about what happened to his mom. He said, Dad, you love that kid and don't be afraid to tell him everything about the good and bad about his mother. He has a right to know because he's been robbed of years and years being with his mommy. Uh, Sam Evans also called on the community to support Ochoa's husband, children, and parents, saying that notes and hugs are incredibly powerful during the healing process. He also individually offered a helping hand to the Ochoa family, saying if they ever needed to talk or if they need a hug, he's always willing to be there for him. Oh, what a sweetheart. Yeah. um, He also kind of credits getting through it to raising his grandson, saying we could have laid down and died, but we didn't. So, oh man, I'm like tearing up right now. I know. This is, I, That's... Th- I think again, like it's such a hard one because I've heard so much of this from Tim because, I mean, obviously yeah. this didn't happen to him, but like he was 10 years old in a family he knew got and probably deeply murdered. impacted. It, yeah. it definitely has. And I've talked to some of his other family about it as well. Um, he gave me permission to say some of that on the episode. I haven't talked yeah. to everyone else in the family about this, so I yeah. won't bring it up more of other things that I know. But yeah, even it, it's just, it's so tragic because again, like, it's bad enough what they did to Deborah. Yeah. Terrible. She was trying so hard to change her life and like, make sure her kids were okay. But killing Samantha and Joshua as well and leaving a toddler alone for hours it's such a horrendous thing to do yeah and so just un- unnecessary unfair mm-hmm. all of it it's terrible right and you know there are some horrific specifics but that is the general case but i do think it's interesting because rarely, um, you know, there is the Supreme Court record because it was a death penalty case, um, mm-hmm. which allowed me to get some of the testimony of even, like, it's rare that we get to see the diagnoses given to yeah, somebody in one of those crimes. But I think this is one that, you know, antisocial personality disorder, just hearing the case and then hearing antisocial personalities, like, it yeah. makes sense, right? Like, yeah. it is one of those where it is clear cut. Because I don't think somebody without antisocial personality disorder would think that murdering a woman, stealing a baby, and brutally killing her two kids was the right way to go about getting a child. Right. The callousness of it, um, it only fits with the antisocial. Yeah. So, so ugh, that's terrible. Real, really just awful from start to finish, but so glad that, you know, 
two of the kids survived and I'm yeah. I'm glad to hear I know a couple of years ago there were some pictures of them I don't remember which boy I've seen pictures of like in the news like playing football growing sure. up but I'm you know I hope that they're doing the best with this because I I can't even imagine for sure coping with this as a person so wishing you know no. the whole family the best and hoping that yes. they're okay because this is such a brutal tragedy absolutely yeah we're all gonna send our best to them and obviously with with any case that like we talk about definitely honoring people's privacy too Mm -hmm. absolutely all right um so i'm gonna tell you guys about another terrible case um so this one actually happened in colorado um and it's um dinell lane so this happened in 2015 um, there is a woman named D- Dinell Lane. Um, in 2002, unfortunately, her son Michael accidentally drowned and passed away in a pond on their property. In in the research I was doing, um, I think at one point they were thinking of reopening that case just to make sure that it was like legitimate and that nothing else happened to him, but mm. they decided not to. So I do think it was a legitimate accident. So after that happened in 2014, Dinell was working as a nurse's aide, which I'm just going to highlight that for a second. Okay. She had told her friends and family that she was pregnant again. Um, the interesting part of that is that this would have been impossible because she had her tubes tied after her son passed away. Mm. So keep that in mind as well. <laughs> Um, apparently her boyfriend at the time believed her, but began to grow suspicious because she was pregnant months past her due date. So I'm guessing he didn't know about, um, her getting her tubes tied. In March of 2015, Dinell, uh, posted on Craigslist stating that she wanted to sell some baby clothes. And unfortunately, a woman named Michelle Wilkins responded to the post and agreed to meet Dinell at her house to pick up the clothes. And at the time, Michelle was about seven months pregnant. So according to the story, Dinell brought Michelle into her basement to go through the clothes. And every time Michelle would try to leave, Dinell would start a new conversation. Um, in the testimony, she was saying, yeah, it seemed like, you know, Dinell was like really lonely and she was really desperate for me to stay there. And it was just really kind of a weird vibe. Um, as Michelle went upstairs trying to leave, you know, an hour after being there, Danielle ended up hitting her and scratched her from behind. At that point, I think Michelle had made it up the stairs, um, and threatened to call the police. And at that point, Danielle had hit her over the head with a lava lamp, which ended up knocking her out unconscious. Um, at this point, Dinell, this is graphic, um, used one of the shards from the lava lamp to stab Michelle and smothered and choked her until she went unconscious. When Michelle woke up, that's when she noticed the cut across her stomach. So according to Dr. Leslie Armstrong, who treated both Wilkins and Lane at the Longmont United Hospital on March 18th, um, she testified that Wilkins was nearly dead and had suffered multiple stab wounds as well as a hip-to-hip incision on her abdomen. Another surgeon, I know, another surgeon who operated on Wilkins said the stomach incision was quote-unquote pretty decent and that it would be consistent with a first-year intern doing their first, Um, which is 
you know, it definitely speaks to like her time as like a nurse's aide and, you know, unfortunately with her being so close to like the medical field, I'm sure she was taking notes and being very cognizant of all of that. Um, Dinell's boyfriend came home at about 2.15 that day, supposedly to take Dinell to a doctor's appointment and found Dinell in the tub with the unborn baby. Dinell was quoted as saying she had experienced a miscarriage. So he brought her to the hospital and she told them, this was my baby. I delivered a baby. This is a stillbirth. But she was refusing to be examined by doctors, which is something that we were talking about before, where it's customary for them to examine to make sure everything's okay. Um, right, like if you gave birth on a... And there's a difference between like a home birth that's safe and an unassisted home birth. And if you accidentally have an unassisted home birth, they want to check you out to make sure that your whole placenta came out and that you're not bleeding too much and that you're not going to have a medical complication that could kill you. Like they need to make right. sure your body's okay. Right, especially after something like, you know, a miscarriage or a stillbirth, they need to examine you and of make course. sure everything's okay. Um, so at this point, things became fishy, authorities were contacted, etc. Um, so what ended up happening is Dinell was convicted in 2016, and she was actually sentenced to serve a total of 100 years in prison. So she will not be getting out wow. anytime soon. I was really curious to hear about Michelle and how she's doing. So I'm surprised. How did she survive it? I don't know. Okay. I mean, and, and like the examiner was like, she was nearly dead, but somehow she was able to survive it. Um, so Michelle, she now goes by Ellie, um, is spending her time focused on recovery. So I actually have a quote from her that I thought was pretty powerful. Um, she's like, there's multiple things happening in the process of healing, she said. There's an active participation, going to therapy, exercising every day. Then there are other ways that are more receptive. The process happening inside of us that we don't always have control over. The pain and being honest about it as we work to be more present. That's why I think it's... That's what I think is the difference between getting caught in the loop of trauma and being overwhelmed by the trauma. Slowly but surely, it's possible to really find your ground so that you won't be overwhelmed. But all the while, acknowledge, all the while you acknowledge and are being honest with it. It's been a long process and it's going to be a long process. And I don't ever anticipate a day I won't grieve my daughter or won't be impacted by that experience. But she maintains that by being a victim, she will not be bound by perpetual suffering. Therefore, she is volunteering with the probation department and is also involved in a local non-for-profit organization um, like Natural Highs and Golden Bridge. And now she is hoping to pass on her newfound love of cycling as a therapeutic activity via a program through Natural Highs, for which she is collecting donations and equipment. Um, along with all of this, Michelle slash Ellie Wilkins is also trying to raise money so she can afford to keep going to school at the Prescott College in a program for clinical mental health and body-based counseling. Um, so she really, you know, is, is focused on her healing right now, which I think is so beautiful. And I think everything she said about trauma is super true. Um, and yeah, she's, she's out there, she's surviving and, you know, I'm sure she will continue to think about her daughter. She, uh, Her daughter's name is Aurora. I forgot to mention that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, unfortunately, Aurora didn't survive. But Ellie is, you know, I think she's on to do some great things. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, I'm glad we got one where the mom survived. That's absolutely. Nice. And again, this is the the complicated thing, right? Is that when you don't have the proper medical training to resuscitate an infant, you like, and especially yeah. if you don't know exactly how far along someone is and how their infant is developing i mean for so many reasons this is just not a good plan to steal someone's fetus right like it's not gonna work out the way you want it to murder standpoint like it's not good to murder but also just logistically like you don't know if you're gonna be able to save that baby even if you are in the nursing field or whatever like this woman was but um but yeah, I mean, as as we were kind of discussing, there are several things that really hit the mark on the list of like um, factors that could raise suspicion for somebody who would do something like this, inclu- including losing a child, being in the nursing field. You know, she was right in the age bracket. There are several different things. Um, but yeah, fortunately, she will not be out of jail anytime soon. All right. So that was horrible. All right. From yeah. Start so, to finish. Do you let's good stuff do you have any good stuff lauren i do um this isn't that exciting but my husband went to go get me brisket grilled cheese so i'm gonna go eat that (laughs) i'm really excited brisket grilled cheese that sounds delightful i know i'm jealous i hope you enjoy your grilled cheese thank you do you have any good shit i do have good shit going on in the world is just the television show golden girls Mm-hmm. I'm watching it for the first time ever right oh, now. Oh, it's great. And oh my, I am just, I'm loving it. It is, especially since I think my life has just been so intense lately with everything going on. Mm-hmm. I'm about Golden Girls. It's on Hulu for anyone who's looking for it. If you it's got hilarious. Hulu, check it out. Because yeah, I've been needing like some wholesome stuff in my life and golden girls has been there for me it's been being a friend so thank you being a friend thanks for being a friend golden girls yes all right guys well thanks for stopping by thanks for getting spooky and if you like us follow our facebook if you want to become a patron we'd love that too yeah but thanks for and we'll see you next time getting spooky yes thank you bye bye